When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone and welcome to Not Just Cricket. I'm Mark Nicholas and during this series of podcasts I've spoken to a glittering array of devotees, vanguards and stars of the game that has played such a huge part in my life. The premise is to investigate the journey successfully taken by each of my guests while hopefully unravelling a little of their soul too. My guest this week is a man whose love of cricket knows no boundary, a batsman at one time good enough to keep Sir Geoffrey and Dickie Bird out of the Barnsley team, and whose journey to become the master of the televised conversation took him down many new and surprising roads. That man is Sir Michael Parkinson, and that journey began with the man he loved the most, his father. Michael, what a joy to see you across modern technology. I want to start with your book, your most recent book, Like Father, Like Son, which explores the relationship with your father and indeed its impact on your relationship with your own three boys. It's also a very uh, illustrative social biography of the time, of course. Uh, This man, John William, meant an enormous amount to you. Everything. Absolutely everything. Whatever I became, whatever I am, is due to him. Which is not to say that I had a mother who just faded into the background. She was a very strong lady indeed. But my father was kind of beating heart to the family. He had a humour, he had ambition for me, he was generous and all those things. And he never hit me, he never even raised his hand to me, I don't think he ever shouted at me. So I grew up in a kind of idyllic childhood, in a less than idyllic area. And I suppose that was the contrast that affected me throughout my life, that what was the difference between the conditions I grew up in with my parents and the actual society I was living in too. It was very different. And I'd always thought, you know, my, my dad went down the pit when he was 12 or 13. And he died down there, really. I mean, he was there for 40 years. And when he eventually emerged from a hole in the ground, uh, he had a lung disease, which killed him in the end. He was 71, 72 when he died, but he was a fit man. He should have lived a lot, lot longer. And I carried with me all my life a kind of resentment that that should have happened, not just to my dad, but to, to anybody. And there were many, many, many thousands more like him. So my love for him was also based on an admiration I had for quite the best human being I ever met. Mm. Did he ever take you down the mine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he did. <laughs> he took me down when I was about 13. And we went down Grimethorpe Colliery and got me in the shaft and gave the wink to the winder, the guy who could control the speed of the drop. So he dropped me like a stone. That was the sort of opening uh, quotation, if you like. Enjoy yourself from now on. And then he took me into the working seams. He took me into three-foot seams. And then we were working on the bellies, digging coal. And, and it frightened me, it terrified me. It's, it talks down there, you know, it groans, it creaks, it squeaks, it's, it's horrible. The dirt everywhere, just grim, a nightmare, and I could not wait to get away. And we're coming back home, and I'm walking down the pit lane with him back to our house. And he said to me after a while, he said, uh, what do you reckon? I said, not much, Dad. 
I said, I'm glad you said that. He said, because I have to tell you, if ever I see you again at the pit gates looking for a job, I'll kick your ass all the way home. <laughs> and I said, in that moment, my decision became a different one. Not that I ever had a, a one of going down a pit, of course, but I don't know why I imagined I might do, but I knew I had to get away, and I did. I chose journalism and got away. I know what he wanted you to do, of course, but we'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> I love the picture on the cover of the book because it sets the time so well, a very distant hmm. society, hmm. a minimalist society, and hmm. a simpler life. Walking out to bat with my father at Bradlington or Scarborough, I'm not quite sure which it was. We go every year, and, and the ritual was my father would patrol the sands and find out who the Lancashire families were because he always wanted to arrange a game, Yorkshire v Lancashire. And he, he was a wonderful organiser and entrepreneur, so he always had his way. And then we'd play this beach cricket, just for pride, really. And those were the great moments of my career. My father wanted me badly to be a creator. I did say, actually, it's a perfectly true story, that when he was dying, I used to sit with him and we'd jabber away. And I'd drink some of the medicine that was a painkiller for him too, so we were both pretty high. And uh, he said to me one day, he said, uh, you've had a good life, haven't you, lad? I said, I have that. He said, uh, you met some lovely looking women. I said, I have that, that too. He always wanted me to meet Betty Grable because he fancied her like mad. And then he said to me, he said, uh, I said, a good life. He said, but think on it. He said, always remember, it's not like playing cricket for Yorkshire, is he? <laughs> I don't know. It's not that, actually. So I don't know to be buried in my Yorkshire cap, but that never came to be. <laughs> I walked on Scarborough Beach, actually, when we used to play in the festival. I thought oh, yeah. I should pay it attention, given you told me many years ago <laughs> that it was the best beach wicket in the world. <laughs> it was, and also my father, yeah. he, was, he was a captain. He used to actually get the tidal charts. And the demarcation of the boundary line on one side was always the sea. Now, if the sea was in, and that was the boundary line, my father, knowing this, would actually elect to bat. Because when we were batting, it was a push through mid-wicket, and it was four runs. Yeah. By the time they came into bat, the sea was three miles out. So the boundary was right beachy head. So the scoring side batting then didn't score very many at all. So he was a cunning captain as well as being a yeah. lady man. In my own book, I wrote about losing my father aged... 10 and you rang me up about that and said mm. you found it a moving I did. chapter and I watched you as many you know, millions did on Piers Morgan's show Life Stories a couple of years back and clearly you know you broke down because of your love of him eh? and maybe you know a, a sort of a delayed grief I mean yeah. you you know you've explained how seeing him die was a dreadful thing but do you think that grief sometimes festers? I don't understand grief. The more I became aware of it and concerned about it, tried to deal with it, the less I knew about it. It's a very strange thing. It, it lurks in dark corners of the soul of the mind. And that was one occasion in the unlikely event of being in a TV studio where you know, you're know you aware of it, you said to yourself, now, come on, do it. I, when he asked me about it, a question I've been asked many times before about the death of my father, I just, I don't know what happened. Uh, a, a kind of a wall came down, a defence fell away, and, and I just couldn't tell. I felt so stupid and foolish, but I did. It's a mystery, grief. I mean, where does it lurk? Why does it in moments express itself? Has it gone away totally now? I don't, I hope it I hasn't, not totally, because I think that 
grief is a condition that you carry with you through the love of a person. I don't yeah. think that's a bad thing at all. I understand that you've been asked it a lot, but I ask you because I've found, as I've got older, I've thought about my father much more. I think when you're very young, you kind of get on with life, whether subconsciously or consciously, but you do. And then when you have more time to think about it, and particularly when you write, actually, hmm. the sort of analytical side of your brain begins to look deeper into somebody. And of course, in your case, he was such an influence, and you miss that influence, that the older you get, the more apparent it is to you, and, and the more you're surrounded by the development of your own sons. And I wonder if you've ever worried you didn't give them as much as John William gave you or something, you know, I, where there's anything there. I understand the question. It's one that anybody worries about. What kind of a person am I? How do they think about me? Did I inspire them? Did I not? I suppose I, certain things I learned from my father. I never thought of hitting my children or anything like that, chastising them that way. So that was a good thing. But I could never be what he was. I mean, he, the thing about my dad was he was a simple man. He went to work in the morning, did an eight-hour shift, came back, had a kit, went in his garden, dug a few potatoes and went to bed. That was in football season, or he watched Barnsley play. In the cricket season, he spent his time down the cricket field. So, I mean, it was a very, very uh, simple life. My life has been much, much more complicated, like yours has. So it's difficult to make any kind of observation that makes any sense. All you can be happy about is that you did actually have that shining example with you. In your case, not long enough. Ten years is nothing. Mm. In my case, my lifetime. And uh, the book is a tribute to what he did, what he gave me. Yeah. And of course, it was, what was interesting too was to see the effect he had on my children. I mean, Michael, who wrote the, co-wrote the book with me, wrote a wonderful chapter about the history of miners and mining and how awful the job was. I mean, he adored his granddad, loved him like a dad, actually. So it rubs off all that sort of interrelation, adds up to one thing or another. In my case, fortunately, it's added up to a very happy family life. I love the, the hands. You know, you held his hand right at the end and, you know, one was gnarled and the other yeah. was soft and conditioned. Yeah, I'd always had that. As a child, I remember putting my hand in his when we were walking and I remember thinking, that's very rough, that, you know, it's like parchment, it's scrapey, scrapey. And it wasn't until later that I, I understood why. I mean, he was a manual labourer, basically. Mm. He took coal, you know. Yeah. And your, your mother... Frida Rose was the side of the family that gave you a love of, of music, theatre, film. Is she responsible for the rock cinema in Cudworth and your first <laughs> viewing of Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca? <laughs> she has to be, I think. She was, yeah. She used to go three times a week and I'd sit next to her. She was a great knitter. She made a living out of designing knitting patterns for Peyton and Baldwin. The end of the film, Casablanca, or it might be, and the lights would go up and she'd have a pullover <laughs> in her hand. I mean, we should then sell the pattern to Peyton Bowen and we made quite a bit of money, my mum did. She did. And when she died, we found a treasure trove of all the old patterns that Peyton Bowen had sent her yeah. from her designs. So, yeah, she, was, she was a very talented woman, my mum, and, and she was a frustrated woman because she should have gone to university in a different life. She would have done. But her parents sent their boy, she had a brother, and they saved up and they actually sent their son off to, to Oxford and they were still paying the debt. They had to borrow the money for the for 40 years. Mm. But that could have been my mother. And had it been, I often wonder what she might really have done with her life. She was mm. a very... It affected her in the sense that she was 
carried a, a grudge, if you like, most of her life about that. She she felt that she'd not been chosen, and that she would have made a, a good job of it. And I never wanted that to happen to me or to any of my children, because it was a very souring process in many ways. And to, to be frustrated through your life like that, when you know you're talented, when you have a talent, and nobody takes any notice of it, is to be, I suppose, very frustrated mm. and sad. Well, the knitting kept thee warm in winter, lad. <laughs> and we know she knitted everything. She knitted her yeah. sister a wedding dress in wool silk. Did she? She knitted the entire thing, a beautiful thing. And every Christmas we used to have a party because my father loved Christmas parties. And part of the initiation ceremony was to get dressed in this this robe that she'd written. I watched Casablanca the other day. Isn't it interesting how you know you think of the development of film over however long it is, seventy years? It's still very beautifully shot, isn't it? There's a softness to it. It's almost a defocus. Mm. And the beauty of the faces are almost easier to imagine when you walk away from the film. They stay with you longer, perhaps, than modern high definition. It's just a wonderful film, isn't it? It's a great story, a beautifully cast, and Bogart and Bergman together were oh, yeah. uniquely wonderful. And the scripts were good, and the support players, Sidney Green Street and Peter Laurie and all those people, added up to a time in Hollywood when the movies were wondrous. I grew up loving movies because of films like that. And that was one of the great ambitions of my life, was to meet Ingrid Bergman. And I did. And uh, she walked down the stairs of my show and I could hardly believe what was happening. I really, for the, one of the few times in my life, I was almost overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> because she was so serenely beautiful. Yeah. And when she was in London, she was taken to a hospital where she eventually died. She had cancer. And I wrote her a letter, not signed, just saying, your greatest fan. And she sent me a letter back saying, I think it's you. <laughs> be still, Silly. be still your beating heart. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> In um, those days, I mean, imagine the pit village in Yorkshire, you know, I mean, it wasn't very glamorous at all. So the, up on screen were all these huge stars. There was no television. So they were there, they were different. They were like perfect animals, you know. And then one day, you imagined that you'd meet them, but you never had a chance. But I did. All of them, Cagney the lot, you know, Astaire. And it was such a kind of a... I couldn't have imagined what it might have been like had I not, first of all, seen them as mm -hmm. I did as a kid. On the silver screen. Wonderful. So this podcast is called Not Just Cricket, but we have to do a bit of cricket, you'll be relieved to hear. <laughs> it's a very good reason. I think so, particularly as your father was, A, a good cricketer and such an influence, and, and I imagine a great maintainer of standards. I mean, the, the, you know, mm. facing the twin imposters and telling you that you have to cope as well with one as with the other. Cricket is a great examiner of character, isn't it? Very much so. No game has that same effect on you, on all the kind of senses that you have. I just think it's the greatest game in the world and always have done. And I love watching playing it, anything. I, I love watching my kids play. But yes, I mean, it's, it's a perfect game and uh, we've got a very good side now and a, a Yorkshire captain, which is always a good thing. <laughs> Uh, and I, I look at that side and I see a side of intelligence and good selection and, and the future. I mean, I know that Jimmy Anderson's passed the first flush, but, you know, there are, we're never short of, of seam bowlers in Britain. I mean, he comes along once every, every year, every 20, 30 years, a wonderful, wonderful creator. 
But no, I just look at the future ahead and think I've got a few more years left to watch cricket, so it'll be a few more years watching a good England yeah. side, which, which pleases me. Yeah, I mean, it is nice to see England playing such consistently good cricket. It is nice to see a side with three, well, you'd probably call them great players or, or soon to become great players in Root, Anderson and, and Broad. And, you know, there have been periods where English cricket's been a mess. And, and in fairness to it, it that no. isn't the case now. No, not at all. I think they are the great players. And I think there are one or two coming through as well. I wish we could solve the problem of what to do with Johnny Best. I think Johnny's a very fine yeah. cricketer indeed. And I think that, you know, this present sort of selection, I see all the reasons why it's happening. But I like him on the side. He's a doughty player. Uh, and and he's, he scores quickly. And, and he's a robust mm. performer. I like mm. him on the team. There's a, there's a question mark over a couple of the batsmen, aren't there? Young Lawrence, he's got to prove yeah. it, everything to prove. Yeah. But I hope it, it, it does okay. But I know we've got lots, lots and lots of good cricketing yeah. years ahead, yeah. I hope. Well, you, you're more than, you're more than <laughs> well, that. Well, maybe, such, you never know. You? You're, such a, you're such a young shaver. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Pop. Um, um, so it's well documented that you uh, beat Boycott to a place in the club side uh, in your days, yes. Barnsley and stuff, and and, and Bird was yeah. there, Boycott, Bird and Parkinson all together at the yeah. same time. It's well documented that there's many a Yorkshire cricketer you've admired, and yet I sense that Dennis Compton, Keith Miller, Shane Warne, and amongst footballers, George Best, have been greater heroes of yours, and therefore I think you lean towards the aesthetic, not the pragmatic. Is that fair? Oh, yes, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that you have to watch any game and glory in the athleticism, the style, the manner of the man or the woman. Absolutely so, without doubt. I mean, I've always been drawn to people like Tom Graveney. If you ask me to, who was the best player I ever saw, well, I would mention some of the names. But if you ask me who was the greatest pleasure I got from watching, I would say Tom. I mean, I just used to love the style, his grace, his manner, the shape of the manner, he walked out, everything. So, I mean, that's a, a given from my point of view. And football, too. I mean, you see, the one thing about, about George was that, you know, apart from being a great footballer, he was a beautiful-looking player. Uh, I'm not just now talking about him, how handsome he was. I'm talking about the way he moved, the way he shifted around the field. His body balance was perfect. And there was a great aesthetic thrill in watching people like that. Now, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Hello again, this is Mark Nicholas with Not Just Cricket. Let's get back to where we left off just a moment ago. We have two all-time greats in, in the game now, in Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Do you put George ahead of them? No, the inevitable answer is yes, because I knew him better and I loved him. Uh, you know, he was a, a strange, mixed-up lad toward the end and ultimately tragic figure. But he was a good friend to me and I was a good friend to him, I think. So we got on very well together and, and I adored him. Do you think some of these guys with genius in them almost are bound to become, at some stage in their life, confused and perhaps depressed and... and unable ever to match the magic of those glory years? I think the altitude that they reach could sometimes have a, a giddy effect on them, which leads to, you know, drinking, whatever it might be. So there's a consequence of that kind of fame and adoration. I think in George's case, it was very simple. He was an alcoholic. 
What do we know about that? I don't know. But he, he was an alcoholic. He couldn't stop drinking. Even in his pomp, and he was not a stupid man, he was a very intelligent man, you couldn't say it to him. You couldn't say to him, for God's sake, stop it. No. Carried no weight with him at all. He couldn't see no. it. He preferred to get drunk. That was the point. You know, he's a man who had what, two liver operations. Oh, come on, what, what's, what's that about? <laughs> I mean, that's how powerful a grip mm. it had on him. Yeah. Interesting that the modern equivalent in cricket could have been, but hasn't been, of course, Shane Warne, who you know and, and yeah. like very much. And Shane's handled himself yeah. remarkably well, both in the afterlife, but during his playing days too. I mean, we, you know, his weight fluctuated a bit, but he always seemed to keep himself in control to the best effect for his cricket. Shane always had a kind of a... was able to look at himself and laugh, I think. That was the thing. He also had that ability to actually not mock what he'd become, but to actually understand it well. I don't think George ever did. I don't mean to say that George spent his lifetime considering what a great player he was. I just think he kind of took it for granted, in a way, and didn't understand quite what was happening to him until it was too late. With Shane, I think Shane's a lot more shrewd than that. I think Shane had worked it out a long time before. Thank God he had, because what a player he was. Mm. And is. Yeah, <laughs> he'd be in our list, wouldn't he? If we were picking our best Would he team ever? ever to watch, we'd have him in that side, yeah. He'd be the number <laughs> yeah, one yeah, pick yeah. for me. And Tom Gravely. <laughs> yeah, Tom Gravely. You might have Fred Truman and Keith Miller in there. Oh, no, there's no two ways about that. They'd be, they have a dual role of kind of hospitality bookings as well as being great players. Would you have Sir Geoffrey in there? For my life, of course. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Quite right. Mm. I want to just talk about Australia a bit. You went to Australia in the 70s. Mm. It was ready for you. Mm. Um, <laughs> you did your show there for many years. Cricket is part of the national culture and conversation. And you've received two great honours, the Bradman Oration and the Australia Day speech. You've given both mm. skillfully and successfully. It's a place close to your heart, isn't it? Most of I settled in. Uh, I always imagined I would like it. I suppose it was because, you know, the cricket and all that sort of thing. And Chips Rafferty and all those Aussie movies. And I did. I just felt very, very comfortable there. My father had a theory that Australians, because they're so good, good at cricket, were sunburnt Yorkshiremen. <laughs> and and, and, and I, it took a while for me to discover he was probably right. Yeah. They're very North Country in their attitude. They're quite blunt and not front, but friendly. I just felt very, very much at home and, and still do whenever I go there. And I like the country. I just like the feeling of space. I find it very agreeable and very relaxing. Right, I put it to you that the 1960s, the cultural revolution of the moment provided opportunity for all sorts of people who might have otherwise had it and an opportunity that you grabbed. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it was a, a different time than that which I grew up as a child. And I was in a, a job to journalism where you could be flexible, you could move about. It wasn't as rigid, if you like, as it is now. So I picked a very good time to, to be a hack. And I enjoyed it. I, mean, I had no ambition to be in television at all. I just enjoyed being a journal. I mean, I, a reporter, that's right. I still am in, in, in a sense, you never lose it. Doing a talk show, walking down the stairs, all that glamour and nonsense. In the end, it all depends. Can you ask the question? Can you shape the interview? And that in itself was something that I learned on the hoof 
growing up. And it, it was a wonderful apprenticeship, it really was. So I was lucky from that point of view. The 60s were marvellous because the music was, was wonderful too, and the Beatles. And I joined Granada as a producer from Bleach Street when I was 23, something like that. And, and it was all there. I mean, uh, Granada, I mean, the Beatles were like our resident group. Uh, they were getting known, not as big as it became, of course. But every booking we made, the Stones, the lot came, came up to do a bit on our programme, a nightly show, became world famous. We saw them breaking out, becoming what they eventually became, these huge stars. So it was a fascinating time. And to be a part of it was, was wonderful. Yeah, and, and when you did get the show eventually on the BBC, mm. it was a time when people were happier to talk, but certainly more openly. But what was so remarkable to me looking back at some of the old shows, it dawned on me that, of course, mm. you never had any other contact with these people unless you saw them in a movie or in a match. Mm. What was it yes. Professor Jacob Bronowski said? The, the thing is, everybody stops me in the street and says says how small I am. So that kind of breaks the ice. It was a lovely line, I remember that. that you know, we didn't know people like we know them now. No, I mean, more than that, I mean, you'd seen James Cagney a million times on movies, but you'd never seen him on television walking down the stairs. So that when he appeared on the show, I said, ladies and gentlemen, James Cagney, there was a gasp, an audible gasp. And this little man came walking towards me, you know, shrugging the shoulders and all that sort of thing. I mean, so that time, there was still a mystery about big stars. There's none now at all. Everybody you have on a show, I don't care from which area of life, is known. Every last detail is known about them. So the job of the interviewer is that much more prescribed and difficult than ever I had it. I had a, a really golden period, an open goal, if you like, uh, every time I, I introduced those people. So that made it even more thrilling and fascinating. I enjoyed every single minute of it, I really did. And it was interesting to be able to talk about a period in time of Hollywood and about the music, particularly the Hollywood musicals, which I adore, with the people who created them. If I'd love to be in anything else, I'd love to be able to write songs. That would have been a great addition to whatever gift I might have had. Michael, you've raised a really interesting thought here that Radio 2 particularly is changing. Oh, don't tell me. The, you know, the great American <laughs> songbook and, and you, Rogers and Hammerstein and Gershwin and Mercer aren't being heard like they once were. But why? Why would you be so daft to have a policy that precludes some of the greatest music ever written. Uh, you know, those composers, the ones you mentioned, and many more besides, created a, a songbook, the Great American Songbook, which was without parallel. It is as important to me, and to lots of more people too, and in the history of music, to the history of music, as any genre you care to mention. What I can't understand about the BBC is that they have these channels which dedicated to, say, classical music. And I don't deny that. I think that's wonderful as well. But why not have a channel which is dedicated to the kind of music like the Great American Song, that kind of area, if you like, the one below classical music? Because it's as, as important as any classical music, and it is some of it is absolutely beyond brilliant. The greatest genius in music, in my view, of all time, of them all, is without doubt Louis Armstrong. All popular music stems from Louis Armstrong, the way he sang. Nobody ever heard anybody sing like that before, but they all do it now. 
So, you know, to, I want the BBC to say that we will omit that from the public consciousness from now on. It's crazy. And I do wish they'd reconsider and try to find a way of presenting this music, which is so terribly important. It really is. I was listening to your Parkinson on music and you've got a, a playlist there and it's interesting listening to any of them really, Sinatra, the master of it, the phrasing, the understanding of the lyric mm. as applied to the tune. Mm. It, it, it's, yeah, I don't know is the answer. I mean, there's jazz FM, there's classical FM, you know, there, there's opportunities for other music. What are your favourite couple of musicals? I, I noticed that Elaine Page's show had two songs from Les Miserables at number one and two. What would you pick as your favourite musicals? I mean, I, if I had to pick a favourite, I would think the musical that actually exploded in my head and changed the way I thought about musicals was West Side Story. And I saw it open in Manchester many, many years ago when I was working on The Guardian. And I went to the opening night in Manchester and I, <laughs> I came out stunned. I came out changed. I mean, I'd seen something... I mean, I'd never seen blokes down that before. <laughs> I was too used to people fanning around on the stage. You know, these guys came out like athletes, and it was wonderful. And uh, so that would be one of my favourites. Uh, my Fair Lady, I love My Fair Lady. I think it's such a beautiful score. Yeah. But there's so much that's good out there. It's what I'm talking about. You know, what is the difference between My Fair Lady and an opera by Bizet? Nothing, really. They've got great tunes in them, great performers to sing them. Wonderful. Why can't the BBC understand that? I hope they do. I really hope they do. It's a very different world of television and radio now. But before we just finish oh. on the show, if I might, just just for a second, I, I know that you've done the show over the years a lot, but and you've said that the only two you feel you missed out on were the Australian cricketer Sir Donald Bradman and Sinatra mm. himself. You finished in uh, 2008, I think. Is anybody since that you would have loved to have interviewed? Donald Trump. Oh. I'd love to have interviewed. Well, I mean, maybe not now, but certainly on his way to be president because it was an entirely different man then, wasn't it? Well, not entirely different, but, but a more uh, acceptable version in a sense, a showbiz person as such. But it would be interesting to do him now as well, wouldn't it? I mean, the interview is there to be done by somebody, not me, but somebody who actually could really get to the soul of the guy. But can you? There's so much of him that's a construct, so much of him that's an invention. So much of him to peel back before you actually got anywhere near what you really wanted from him. Fascinating. I'm I'm glued to the TV set now, watching this failed, I, I imagine, endeavour to actually bring him to task. Uh, the possibility is that he's he won't leave the scene. Probability. I mean, he's going to be an important part of the Republican Party thinking from now on forever. You mentioned that journalism underpinned all your television and radio. Mm work i mentioned it was such a changed world and you've sometimes raged against it any improvements is television any more palatable today than it was a decade ago i think it improves technically in many many ways um i'm not quite sure that i'm altogether pleased with what i see but then again i never was i, I mean i <laughs> think television like anything that it tries to amuse you it has its moments and it has other moments which aren't as acceptable or as joyful to see. Very much like a human being. <laughs> it's a mixture. <laughs> your various <laughs> decorations then. Let's move on. What would your father have said, you think, about your knighthood? 
He'd be very pleased. Yeah, he would have been very pleased. He was delighted at anything that uh, that I got, that he regarded as being a compliment. He would have been as, as pleased as I was. Yeah. You're still so sharp. It's interesting. 85 years old. You lived through the Second World War. You served national mm. service yourself. Did you mention I was a captain? Yes, one of the youngest, <laughs> I think. Were you the youngest <laughs> captain? Uh, well, Robin Esther and I, Robin, who died fairly recently, was a magic editor of the Daily Mail, uh, we were there together. We all should have an argument. I think he used to change his birth certificate. But, uh, but, but there was a month between us or something like that. He was either it or I was, I don't know. But it was fun. I mean, to wander around with three pips on your shoulder <laughs> and to to go back to Mons Officer Cadet School with my three pips up and then to see coming toward me it was a sergeant major. It wasn't Britain, it was another one, though, uh, who I had a bad time with when I was training to be an officer cadet. And as he threw up the arm to salute me, he said, Jesus Christ, he said. <laughs> 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 I actually said worse than that, but you don't get the, 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 the sentiment. The I get the gist, yeah, yeah. It I'm was funny, yeah. I'm with you. Uh, and now you're having to survive <laughs> COVID-19, and as oh, I say, seeming, seeming to sail through it. Excuse me for saying this, but given your much-revered, I would say, a national treasure, oh, what Christ. would you say through your own experiences in the last year to people out there, you know, trying to... Re- put this in perspective through the 85 years of your life, what would you say? What what hope and encouragement would you give to people? I don't think you can, actually, because none of us have lived through something like this. The war, certainly, but the war was a distant thunder. But this is just so impossible to, to understand. I mean, what is it all about? I mean, what do we do? How do we counter it? You know, we... Normally, in a situation like this of a great crisis, we put our arms around each other, don't we? And we sort of get together and, you know, as a unit and become all as human beings for a change. But not this time. We can't do that. So it's an impossible situation. There are no kind words that we can say that are not cliches. But we all have to sort our own way through it. Yeah. Listen, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I mean, I'm looking out here now, and I'm looking at a nice garden and all that sort of thing. And, but those poor people who don't have that facility, who actually just locked into a room or whatever, or a house with no escape, I mean, that's the real tragedy of this situation. Mm. But the one thing you do know, Mark, is the older you get, the, the people are resilient. And a situation like this brings out the best and the worst in people, but more the best than the worst, I think. So we'll get to it, and it'll be, you know, we'll have forgotten about this in 10 years' time. In the light of that, you know, in 10 years' time, we uh, let's hope you're right and we've forgotten all about it. Would Louis Armstrong's perhaps best-known song work as a nice summary for you that it is indeed, in general at least, a wonderful world? Oh, always, always. Any excuse to play Louis Armstrong, I would find agreeable. He was the great entertainer, the great inspiration for many kinds of everlasting music. Michael, wonderful Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure, my friend. Well, well, what a privilege. As my producer Eva said when the interview finished, I feel warm and cosy, as if I've been given a hug by an all-time legend. And she wasn't talking about me. My thanks to Parky, incomparable in so many ways and a long-time friend and mentor. 
That's it then for this series of Not Just Cricket. We've heard some stories and explored the minds of guests who have each bought us a little piece of magic. You can listen back to previous episodes via this podcast feed. This has been a Message Heard production. Our producer is Eva Krisiak, so a special thanks to her. And the music is composed by Matt Huxley. Thanks so much for listening. From my perspective, it's been so much fun. Let's hope we touch base again somewhere further on up the road. Goodbye for now.